2 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 10. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw the altar which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. So Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Thus Uriah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. When the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and went up to it and burned his burnt offering and his meal offering and poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. The bronze altar, which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house, from between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north, on the north side of his altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meal offering and the king's burnt offering and his meal offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meal offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it the blood of the burnt offering and the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. So Uriah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the laver from them. He also took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it and put on put it on a pavement of stone. The covered way for the Sabbath, which they had built in the house, and the outer entry of the king, he removed from the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and his son, Hezekiah reigned in his place. The reading of Holy Scripture, be seated, and let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for your word. Seven times a day, we will praise you for the word of your revelation, this word that you've inspired by the Holy Spirit, the word that you've given to your people, given to the church through, throughout the ages of your people, that they might read it, that they might hear it, and that they might profit from it. We pray that we would profit from this passage of Scripture. We pray that you would teach us by your Spirit's help Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The whole of 2 Kings 16 is devoted to a king of the north, or rather a southern king, 
uh, Ahaz, which uh, we noted last time is uncharacteristic of First and Second Kings so far. In the backdrop of this chapter is uh, a, a scene internationally that is darkening with the growing power of Assyria under its king, Tiglath-Pileser, who has already carried parts of the northern kingdom into captivity in Assyria, chapter 15, verse 29. Israel will soon fall completely to Assyria, be taken away completely into captivity in the land of Assyria, and Judah is teetering on the brink of the same disaster. But the first threat we saw last uh, Lord's Day comes not from Assyria, but from a coalition between Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the king of Israel, verses 5 and 6. Uh, there's an account, we read this last Lord's Day in Isaiah chapter 7, where the prophet urges the king not to be afraid of the enemy, but to have faith in Jehovah's word of promise. This is summed up in the prophet's word to Ahaz in Isaiah 7, verse 9. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. So chapter 16 presents to us a king who wasn't established because he wasn't standing firm on God's promises. And thus far, we've considered a, a drastic departure from the covenant, verses 1 to 4. Ahab walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, meaning that the sins of Jeroboam are now seeping into the south, into the southern kingdom. But Ahaz's departure from the covenant, remember, was much worse than that. He even made his son pass through the fire, practicing child sacrifices to the demon god of Moloch or uh, the demon god Moloch or, or to Baal. And then not just the people, as was uh, characteristically said in these accounts of the king, but King Ahaz himself sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Secondly, we saw a dangerous alliance outside of the covenant in verses 5 to 9. Uh, Ahab, uh, Ahaz is in trouble, but he appeals not to Jehovah, but to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Uh, he reacts not as a covenant king, but as a shrewd politician. He's looking to save his own skin, and he's ultimately putting himself outside of the covenant promises. Today in verses 10 to 20, we'll consider first a deviant departure from biblical worship in verses 10 to 18, and then uh, secondly, quite briefly, the dawning of a new hope in verses 19 to 20. Uh, first then, a deviant departure from biblical worship in verses 10 to 18. Now this section is riddled with interpretive difficulties. Commentators debate whether the altar of verse 10 is an Assyrian altar or an Aramean altar. 
Uh, those who have held that it was Assyrian argue that, that this was the price of sub subservience to Assyria, that uh, King Ahaz had no choice but to introduce changes that reflected homage to Assyria and uh, to its God. But that's unlikely because uh, Judah is still technically independent. It is a vassal state, but it's technically independent uh, rather than an Assyrian province. And Assyria didn't make uh, impositions uh, religious impositions on its semi-independent vassal states. It's far more likely that this was an Aramean altar that Ahaz saw in Damascus and took a liking to. After all, uh, he saw the altar in Damascus. It makes, it makes sense uh, that if he saw the altar there in the city, the capital city of Aram, uh, that it was an Aramean altar, or a Syrian altar, as your English Bible uh, may have it. Second Chronicles 28-23 may confirm the altar's location in Aram. It tells us that Ahab offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. So for Ahaz, Assyria has become his salvation, verse 7, but Aram, his liturgist. Looking past the debate about the altar's location, the basic thrust of this section uh, is that Ahaz is inventing his own worship. It's a drastic departure from the way of worship that Jehovah himself has, has, had instituted in his word. We've already been told that uh, Ahaz followed the kings of Israel, and here he shows himself to be a true successor of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who back in 2 Kings chapter 12, invented his own alternate form of worship with its golden calves at Bethel and Dan uh, to keep people from going to Jerusalem because, remember, he thought that if they went, if they went up to Jerusalem uh, that uh, they would be won over to uh, uh, the worship, then he would lose the inhabitants of his kingdom to uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. You also remember... Uh, appointed non-Levites, whoever wanted to be a priest, whoever he decided to appoint as priest, he appointed them uh, as priests in uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Speaking of priests, there's also a debate about the role of Uriah the priest, uh, who twice in verses 11 and 16 is said to have followed Ahaz's instructions to the letter. And some argue that uh, Uriah was basically a good guy, uh, that he was uh, fundamentally sound because uh, citing a reference in Isaiah 8, verses 1 and 2, uh, they point out that he was a supporter of the prophet. But that passage in Isaiah doesn't say that Uriah was a supporter of the, the prophet. Uh, it, it simply says that Uriah was to be used as a reliable witness to authenticate uh, Isaiah's prophecy. From the king's narrative, it's difficult to avoid the impression that Uriah is a yes man, concerned for his own position. He should have objected. He should have known better. He did know better as Jehovah's priest than to build this altar at all, according to King Ahaz's 
specifications. But verse 11 not only says that he built it according to those specifications, but that he made sure it was complete before the king returned from Damascus. This was a man-pleaser. That describes a man who is eager to please his earthly master rather than his heavenly master. And thus, while the altar was built at Ahaz's direction, we should be sure to take note that the narrative also condemns Uriah, whose name comes up frequently in the text as a person who did what he was told. It's not just the people who come up with evil plans whom God judges, but also the people who carry out their wishes. King Ahaz couldn't have deformed temple worship by himself. In fact, uh, preventing this sort of thing from happening was, was part of the divine wisdom of having prophets and priests as well as kings in uh, the old covenant economy. It was meant to serve as a system of spiritual checks and balances. When a, uh, when a king went off the rails, a prophet or a priest was to help him get back on track. In this case, as an ordained priest, Uriah should have died on that altar before rebuilding it in the Aramean style. Uriah ultimately answered to Jehovah, not the king. Yet he failed to stand up for what was right in the sight of Jehovah. That said, the writer makes clear in verses 12 to 14 that the altar was Ahaz's personal initiative. Three times, verse 12, uh, verse 12 explicitly men mentions the king. When the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. Then the king approached the altar and went up onto it. The language of that last clause is used three times of Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12, verses 32 to 33. He went up on the altar. The narrator is saying that Jeroboam, the pioneer of deviant worship is now in Judah in the form of King Ahaz. Verse 14 tells us that Ahaz had the audacity to change the layout of the temple furnishings. The bronze altar, which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house, from between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. And that might, might not seem like a big deal, but I want you to notice several things from verses 14 and 15. In the first place in verse 14, the bronze altar was before Jehovah. This underscores not only that the sacrifices offered on it were to be offered to Jehovah, but also that the offerings Jehovah had prescribed were, were to be offered on the altar 
whose specifications Jehovah himself had dictated. Second, verse 15 shows that Ahaz displaced the altar and commanded that Jehovah's prescribed offerings be made on the new altar. Third, again in verse 15, Ahaz changed the function of the bronze altar. It was now to be used to inquire or for seeking guidance. The king was was going to use it uh, to inquire by or for seeking uh, guidance, which also uh, implies a kind of uh, superstitious ritual that ignores the directives that Jehovah had given for inquiring of him. That might not seem that this kind of thing would be a problem today. Uh, the furniture of the new covenant church is far simpler than that of the old covenant temple. Now we have a pulpit and the Lord's table. And yet the church has managed to modify new covenant furniture. It may, may not seem like a big deal, but moving the pulpit from the central place and displacing it to the side, replacing it with a lectern, and putting the table, which some like to call the altar, in the center has meaning. And many churches today carry on that practice. That, that has theological significance. It removes the centrality of God's word and it displaces it and makes the sacraments the center of Christian worship. It displaces the central authority of the Word of God and elevates the sacraments to that place. And the other activities here in verses 17 and 18 aren't altogether clear. Verse 17 evidently refers to the ten labor stands described in 1 Kings 7, verses 27 and following. Ahaz apparently cut down the stands and removed the lavers. He also took down uh, the, the bronze sea, a huge basin from the 12 bronze oxen that supported it. Some think he needed more bronze for tribute to the king of Assyria. Others disagree, saying there's nothing said about uh, bronze sil- uh, tribute to, to uh, Tiglath-Pileser, only uh, silver and gold. In any case, uh, asset stripping the temple designed for God's glory is fundamentally wicked. Taking something, stripping the temple designed for God's glory and using it for other purposes is fundamentally evil. Exactly what verse 18 refers to is uncertain. The outer entry of the king to uh, 
the, the house of the Lord uh, seems to be a dedicated royal entrance to the temple. But what was the covered way uh, for the Sabbath? The text says it was built in the house. Is, is that the house? Is, that, is the house uh, the temple? Is it the king's house, the palace? Bottom line is that Ahaz made these architectural changes because uh, of the king of Assyria, our text says. The last clause of verse 18, which apparently reflected his loss of royal prestige as a vassal of the nation of Assyria. What's plain in these verses, whatever we make of them, is that in Ahaz's Judah, it's not Jehovah's word, but the king of Assyria's that dictates how things go in the land of Judah. So much then uh, for this uh, first point, this deviant departure from a biblical worship. Secondly, uh, the dawning of a new hope in verses 19 and 20. The standard uh, summary of verse 19 signals to us that Ahaz's reign is over. Under his rule, things in Judah had reached a sorry state. It brought the Davidic kingdom to humiliating insignificance. There's a new master in Judah named Tiglath-Pileser, a new altar, a new modified temple in Jerusalem. Ahaz sowed to the wind, and Judah is reaping the whirlwind, and it leaves the reader wondering about the future of the line of David. Sadly, the best news about Ahaz uh, in chapter 16 is in verse 20. So Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. But while it may not be evident, there's a ray of hope in the last words of chapter 16. And his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. We won't get to Hezekiah's reign until 2 Kings 18. And Hezekiah's rule won't lack its own set of problems. Nevertheless, suffice it to say that his reign was a time of religious reform and national deliverance. It won't be the final crescendo of God's kingdom. And no, Hezekiah wasn't the king that Judah ultimately needed. That awaited as we have often said through this exposition of 1 and 2 Kings, it awaited a greater than David, David's son and David's Lord, Jesus Christ. As we mentioned this morning in our exposition of Revelation, what an incalculable privilege and blessing it is to live under the revelation the knowledge of the reign of King Jesus.
No, we haven't seen him. And yet we believe in him. And we await his return. What a wondrous blessing that is. So we're looking uh, through First and Second Kings. We're looking for the promised king. We're looking for the Messiah, uh, the King of David, uh, who will reign perfectly. But with, with Hezekiah's reign, there is a period of refreshing. There's a time of restoration. There's a breather from the intense wickedness of Ahaz's reign. God has a tendency to do this, to give these breathers to his people. How merciful that he doesn't ordinarily give us Ahaz upon Ahaz. How kind he is to respond for our need for relief. Such Hezekiah kind. Uh, Hezekiah times, we, we, we might call them, aren't uh, the final solutions, but they're gracious provisions and uh, they should be received as such. William Cooper nicely captures this truth in his hymn, partly based on Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. Who can say it better than that? What implications should we draw from this account of Ahaz's innovations? In the first place, the king's innovations imply that orthodox worship is somehow deficient. He apparently thought that temple worship could be improved, that it lacked something, that an upgrade was needed uh, in temple worship. The new altar from Damascus could enrich Jerusalem's worship, and Ahaz himself would bring it all off in his priestly capacity as he changes the functions of the offerings and makes offerings himself. The church today faces the temptation to travel constantly to Damascus, thinking that orthodox worship is somehow deficient, that we need to innovate worship, uh, to soup it up with music and Dramatic performances, light shows, entertainment, etc. In principle, our worship is the same as Old Testament Judah's. Prayer and praise based on atoning sacrifice. Whenever we attempt to supplement or enrich worship, we're implying that the worship that God has commanded is somehow deficient. 
And doesn't that ultimately mean that when the church today innovates in worship, the church believes that the cross and the table are not enough? You must resist the temptation to travel to Damascus to seek novelty, something new, something fresh, something innovative in worship. Innovations imply that Orthodox worship is somehow deficient. The worship that God commands is somehow deficient. Second, the text implies that evil is helped by weakness as much as by wickedness. Uriah the priest raised no protests. He took no stand on the principles of Jehovah's word. That, those principles that God himself had established for worship. Whatever Ahaz commanded, Uriah did. Obviously, he had a law to lose. Should he refuse to do what Ahaz told him to do? Should he go along uh, with Ahaz's liturgical corruptions? But the way of Uriah never leads to righteousness. It merely cooperates with wickedness and helps to usher evil along its way. Our call as Christians is sometimes to conflict rather than cooperation. Not that we should crave conflict, but that we should fear sharing the sins of others when they corrupt the worship of the triune God. We should raise our protests when we see things go amuck in the church of Jesus Christ. And may our God keep us from booking travel to Damascus. Keep us from innovations in the worship that God has commanded for his people. May he give us the courage to enter into the fray when the situation calls for it so that we don't help evil along its way and we don't cooperate in our weakness and participate in the sins that others introduce into the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our Father, grant us that we would not be innovators, that we would not seek new ways, new measures, uh, that we would not introduce novelty into Christian worship. Grant, O Lord, uh, that our denomination and all faithful Reformed and Presbyterian denominations would remain faithful in their worship. Grant, O Lord, that those churches that are compromising in their worship would return to faithful worship, biblical worship, uh, that, that they would... Uh, Search out your word for those things that, that you have commanded, that the elements of worship uh, that you have called upon your people 
to employ in the worship of the one true God of heaven and earth. Grant, O Lord, that we might be courageous, that we wouldn't be weak uh, as Christians, as members of the church of Jesus Christ, as uh, ministers, as elders, as deacons, officers and members alike, O Lord. Give us courage to enter into conflict when, uh, when need be, and help us, O Lord, that we might not participate in the sins of those who are tainting the true worship that you've appointed for your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.